And we are in our message series on the life of Jesus. We're going across all four Gospels to come up with the complete picture of the life of Jesus. And last week we saw Jesus dramatically heal a nobleman's son from afar. He didn't even go to the house. He just said the word and the boy was healed. And Jesus has made his home base now in the northern part of Israel in a region called Galilee. And he's made it specifically in a town called Capernaum, which is kind of the center of this whole region of Galilee. There's about 240 towns surrounding Capernaum. There's highways going out in every direction. And that's where we're going to pick up our study today. So we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke. We're going to be in chapter 4 today. And it says this, starting in verse 14. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit... You might want to underline in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And news of him went out through all the surrounding region. The reason I had you underline in the power of the Spirit is because the Bible never wants us to forget that Jesus' entire ministry was empowered by the Holy Spirit. His entire ministry was empowered by the Holy Spirit. When he came to the earth, he chose to give up his God's superpowers, basically. Everything he does, every miracle he performs, every teaching that he shares is through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the reason that's so important is because when Jesus leaves the earth at the end of his ministry, he leaves the Holy Spirit for us. And the whole point is Jesus even says to his disciples and followers, he says, you'll do even greater things than you see me do. That's what he told his disciples. The idea is everything I've done, I've done through the power of the Holy Spirit. That same power I'm going to give to you through the Holy Spirit. Everything you've seen me do, the Holy Spirit can do in you. Most of us never reach that point. We just don't grow to that level of faith. But the point is the potential is literally there. So don't dismiss the things Jesus does and go, man, it must be awesome to be super Jesus. He's saying, listen, everything I'm doing, I'm doing by the same Holy Spirit that dwells within you. That's the reason for having such great hope in the power of God. It should inspire us. Verse 15, it says, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. At this much, pretty much, at this point, pretty much everybody, even the Pharisees, accepts Jesus as a rabbi. They accept that he's a Jewish religious teacher. Enough people are listening to him. He has enough respect. They respect him in that manner and because of that they afforded him the respect that was due in the culture to any rabbi who was visiting a synagogue which is just a jewish church if you were a visiting rabbi what they would do is give you an opportunity at some point in the service to to read a portion of scripture and then briefly comment on it and so jesus is visiting synagogues in all these towns around capernaum and galilee and when he does they say is there anything you'd like to share and he says yeah i'd like to share something and this is what's going on when we reach verse 16 and we find Jesus back in his hometown of Nazareth, which is in Galilee, where he was raised. Most of the people there would have known him for years. Verse 16, so he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, you're going to want to underline, as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. It was the custom of Jesus Christ himself to attend public worship. It was his custom custom did you catch that it it, it was his habit it was his way of living it was his lifestyle jesus is 
our example. And, and to be a Christian means that you want to become more like Jesus. He's your hero. He's your role model. He's everything you want to be. You, you know, if you've ever been a young athlete or known a young athlete, they all, they all have athletic heroes. And when you're a young athlete and you have a hero who's an athlete, you want to learn everything about him in the hopes that if you do the same things, you can get to some of the same places. You know, I was a tennis crazy kid. I would just ha- hang, out at the, hang out at the club. I don't know if there's a lamer way to use the term I would hang out at the club when the club in question is a tennis club. I just realized that. I'd be hanging out at the club and... Um, 10 years old, playing pickup tennis with anybody who was there. My idol was Andre Agassi. Andre Agassi, when he bust on the scene, his big thing was he would wear bike shorts underneath his shorts. Still makes, like, no sense at all, right? You know, and I was like, you know what? I got to get me some bike shorts so that I can be like Andre Agassi. You know, my, my forehand power is going to increase by 15% purely because of the bike shorts. And so when, when you're like that, you want to know about the athletes you look up to. You want to know what, what do they eat? What's their workout routine? How many reps do they do? How often do they rest? Who are the coaches that they listen to? How much game tape? You want to know all this stuff because in your mind you're thinking, if I can do all the things that they do behind the scenes, maybe I can get the results that they get in public. And so for those of us who desire to be like Jesus, who call ourselves Christians, we pay close attention. Our ears perk up anytime the Bible tells us something that was a habit of Jesus. When the Bible says this was his custom, we go, oh man, that's, that's important because I want to be like Jesus. So when the Bible says this is something he did every week, this is something he did every day, we take note of it because we want to be like Jesus. And that's how we should be with Jesus. Did you notice that Jesus didn't say, you know, I can worship God in nature, so I'll just skip church. Go enjoy my creation. And if anyone had a right to say, you know why I don't go to church? It's full of hypocrites. It would be Jesus, right? I mean, he's visiting people. He could actually say, in fact, you guys are such hypocrites. You are going to call for my murder in three years. That's a serious level of hypocrisy. Jesus would have been completely justified in saying, you know, you're all full of hypocrites. And you're not? No, I'm not. I'm Jesus Christ, not a hypocrite. You know, if anybody could have said, "Uh, you know, I don't go to church because uh, I've, I've just heard it all before. Don't get very much out of the teaching. Would have been Jesus, right? He's like, not, not only have I heard it, I wrote it. You're, you're butchering it. I mean, Jesus could have said that very easily. I don't think Jesus is there taking notes like, oh, thank you. I, I didn't realize that when I wrote it, that it meant that. Thank you so much for, for sharing. So why does he go? It's not like it's a Holy Spirit hoedown either. It's not like there's revival breaking out. Why does Jesus go? He goes simply to be in the midst of the church, to be with and around other people that love the Father and serve the Father. Jesus loves his church. He loves his church. And if we're going to be like Jesus, we have to love his church. He also went because he had something he wanted to give to the Father. He wanted to give the Father public worship and public honor. And he wanted to honor the word of God as well, publicly. And that's why he went. So Jesus doesn't have this agenda where he goes to church and he says, you know why I go? Because there's all this stuff I want to get. 
And when I don't go, it's because I don't think there's enough stuff I can get. He goes to church to give of himself in worship to the Father and in fellowship to other believers. He's going because he says, you know what? I might bump into somebody there that needs a word of encouragement. That's why I'm going to go. And I'm going to go because I want to worship my Father and let everybody know I love my Father. That's why Jesus goes to church. And so I share that gently to hopefully rip apart any of our excuses for skipping church because it was the custom of Jesus. He loves, he loves, he loves his church. And hopefully so do we. You know, in Hebrews 10, 24, in the Bible, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. So let's write this down. If Jesus prioritized being a church for public worship, how much more should I? If Jesus prioritized being a church for public worship, how much more should I? And I want to share one final note for any parents in the room. And for those of you who are going to be parents one day. I, I have five kids. Uh, I've worked in churches for 12 years, full time, 15, 16 years, including the part time years. One of the most painful mistakes I see parents make involves a commitment to church. You know, when, when you're raising children, you are putting your habits upon them. The way you choose to live as a family is instilling habits into your children. Those habits have values attached to them. The things that you do habitually are generally things that you value. And so when your kids grow up in a house where, hey, we go to church unless we've got a sporting event we gotta go to, unless there's a really big game on, unless it's a great day, then it's lake day. The real message that you're sending your children is church is incredibly important unless you have anything else to do. That's what your children are going to pick up. They're going to pick up on your values. So you might talk the talk and say church is so important. All that's going to happen is when your kids grow up, they're going to talk the same talk. Church is so important. When last did you go? It's about six weeks ago. You know, the day is going to come when your daughters and your sons are going to leave your home, they might move away, and that's when it's going to hit you as parents. God, I hope my son, I hope my daughter is connected to a good church because you know if they're connected to a good church, they're going to be connected to a good group of people who love Jesus. Their social circle is going to be godly, and that's going to carry out through their whole life. But how are you going to feel if you talk to your kids and they're like, yeah, yeah, I found a church how often are you going? You know, once, once every couple of months. Once every couple of months. You're going to worry as a parent about that. You know, there's a reason we do communion every single week at church. We have it available. A- and the whole point is that Sunday, one of the great functions of Sunday is no matter how far you drift during the week, every Sunday, the Holy Spirit and the Word of God is going to call you back. I hope that cycle doesn't continue forever, but it's going to call you back And if you don't want to come back, you're going to have to resist the Holy Spirit. You're going to have to do that. Here's what I know. You can drift a long way in a week. You can drift further in three weeks. You can drift further in six weeks. You can drift further in two months. That's why church every week is so important. It's that call back to the Lord. Begin again. Get refocused. Start your week with Jesus. So I really want to encourage the parents. Man, there's nothing Nothing in life 
more important than your child's relationship with Jesus. Nothing. And, and we'll all discover that as parents one way or another. But it's better to learn it now. So let, let me encourage you to do that. And it's my job to care about your spiritual well-being. That's why I have to share that. I'm not trying to offend anybody. It's my goal to help you make godly decisions for your family. I really, really, really believe in that. You know, having, having weekly church is something that has so radically, radically impacted my life. And we tend to look at it and we say, you know, it's just it's one and a half, it's two hours a week. And I, I can't explain it. But getting to be in churches where the word of God is taught every week has revolutionized my life, revolutionized it. I can't explain it because it's something supernatural that God does. He just puts his word in you and it sticks there throughout the week. And I know that there's, there's people in this room who have that same testimony where they would say, you know, we don't hang out with people from the church every day of the week. We're not at events all the time. But there's something about being with God's people on a weekly basis and getting in the word that changes your mindset for the whole week. God blesses it. He does something supernatural. So at their church services, everyone would stand for the reading of the scriptures. And the idea was to show reverence for the scriptures. It'd be very awkward in our custom because we go verse, talk about it, verse, talk about it. So it would be stand up, sit down, fight, fight, fight. That's why we don't do it. But then the rabbi at the end of the scripture reading would sit down. And that was the indicator. He was finished reading directly from the scriptures and he was now going to start preaching. He's going to start expounding on the scriptures. And he would sit down in a posture of humility to sort of show that the, the word of God is more important than he is. We stand, he stands for the word, sits when he starts sharing his own thoughts on the word of God. But everybody else, out of respect for the rabbi, would keep standing through the whole message, which I think is a great way to stop people from falling asleep during the message. This is all stand together, so I don't have the guts to try it quite yet, but if people start falling asleep, we might just try it. You know, I feel the Lord calling us back to some customs, so highly, highly effective strategy. Verse 17, it says this, and he, Jesus, was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. So he's asked for the scroll, actually, that has the writings of Isaiah on it from the Old Testament. And when he had opened the book, he's opened the scroll, he found the place where it was written. We're going to keep going in one second, but I want you to notice it's Jesus who chooses this passage of Scripture, and he's going to use it to make a declaration about himself. He's going to read a prophecy that's from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Just part of the Old Testament. It's written hundreds of years earlier. This is what it says, verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And I want you to notice that at the end of his reading, there's a period. You might want to put a little circle around that period, and it's going to be important. I'll tell you why in a few minutes. Because in Isaiah 61, if you actually go there, that prophecy doesn't end where that period is. In Isaiah 61, there's a comma. And verse 2 actually continues in Isaiah to say, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, this is on your outlines, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. That's missing from what Jesus shares. And sometimes what's missing is the most important thing. We're going to find out why. Verse 20, then he closed the book, closed the scroll, and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed upon him. So when he does this, Jesus is in a room full of Jewish men. 
They're all raised and taught the Old Testament, taught to memorize it. So when Jesus finishes there, closes the scroll, they all know those three other lines that are missing from what he says. And they're all thinking, um, aren't you going to finish verse 2? Aren't you, aren't you going to finish that? Why, why is he doing that? But Jesus has closed it and sat down showing he's done with that. So they're all puzzled. Everybody's eyes are fixed on him wondering what, what in the world is going on. And he began to say to them, verse 21, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's pretty profound because the scripture is God has anointed me. Jesus rolls it up and he says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. That's a sermon, right? You know, we can say, hey, you know that portion of scripture we just read, it's about me. It's me. I'm the me in that portion of scripture. So all of the men there knew that this prophecy was messianic. It was about the Messiah. It was about the prophesied Savior God was going to send. They all knew that it was about the Messiah. And Jesus has just told them with no confusion, very directly, he is the Messiah. He's telling them, it's me. I'm the Messiah. This is all about me. Would have been a lot for them to take in his own hometown crowd. Jesus tells them he's the Messiah. So write this down on your outline. The prophecy from Isaiah is the Messiah's mandate. It's the Messiah's mandate. If you didn't get the fill-in before that, it's just that he's telling them that he is the Messiah. But the prophecy from Isaiah is the Messiah's mandate. He's just told them that God has anointed him with the Holy Spirit for the specific purpose of accomplishing these tasks. To preach the gospel, to preach good news to the poor, Continuing with the theme of Jesus' ministry we saw last week, there's no type of person that the gospel is for. The gospel is for anyone who wants it. But Jesus specifically says it's good news for the poor. And sometimes we distort this and we go, oh, that's because Jesus loves poor people and hates rich people. Jesus isn't a communist. He doesn't have a political leaning. It's not a financial statement. The reason he says it is because in their belief system in those days, they attached your financial standing to your level of godliness. So the assumption was you're poor, something spiritually wrong with your walk with God, probably a bad person. You're rich, you must be a godly person because God must be blessing you. So when Jesus says, I've come to preach good news to the poor, he's shattering that entire belief system. He's saying, listen, this, this gospel is, is for the poor as well. This is for them. He goes on and he says to heal the brokenhearted. And you know, can we, can we be real for a minute? Bro- brokenhearted people, if we're honest, are very hard to minister to. They're very hard to minister to because you have an abundance of compassion and mercy the first week and they come back the second week and they're still brokenhearted because it still hurts. You have a little bit less compassion. By the time a month is over, you're saying like, man, like I know what happened to them, but like, are they ever gonna get over it? We just don't have a, a huge capacity for compassion. Most of us don't. Jesus says, listen, I've come for the brokenhearted. As long as it takes, I've come to minister to them, to give them hope again and again and again. I've come to heal them in a way that you can't. I've come to heal them. Says to proclaim liberty to the captives. He came with the message that there's freedom in him. I've, I've come for people who feel trapped by their life situation, by their sin, by their addiction, by their past. I've come to let them know you're free. And any time you start feeling imprisoned again, you can come back to me again and I'll remind you that you're free. 
That's what I've come to do. Recovery of sight to the blind. He's speaking literally, but he's also speaking metaphorically. He's saying people who didn't have any idea what the truth was, I'm, I'm coming to reveal to them the greatest mysteries of life. I'm coming to reveal to them that I'm God and how they can know me. To give sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Those who are oppressed. You know, when someone's been oppressed, they hold back. They're defensive. They're, they're timid. They're fearful. And yet, because Jesus is anointed to free them, he finds a way to reach them. Even those people who might sit in a service or sit in your place of work, and you can't minister to them because you can't even get them to tell you what's wrong. Holy Spirit has a way to reach those people. That's what Jesus came to do. Let's go back to the missing scriptures from Isaiah. So why does Jesus stop? Jesus himself is dividing the prophecy into two parts. He intentionally leaves out the last part. You notice that. And then he says about the first part, he says, this section that I've read, this is being fulfilled today. He says this scripture, this specific section. He doesn't claim the last section is being fulfilled that day because it's not. What Jesus is doing is he is dividing the prophecy between his first and second comings. This is the first coming of Christ. He's saying this first portion of the prophecy is being fulfilled right now. My first coming, that's what this is about. It's the day of the Lord's favor. It's good news. It's freedom and it's liberty. That's why he came the first time. The Bible tells us that there will be a second time. Jesus is going to come again. As surely as he came the first time, he is going to come a second time. Second coming has not been fulfilled yet. So write this down. The comma in Isaiah 61.2 divides between Jesus' first and second comings. That comma has lasted about 2,000 years at this point. It's a big comma. It's a really big comma. And his second coming will be what? It says the day of vengeance of our God. Man, we love the baby kissing Jesus, don't we? We love the sight to the blind, freedom for the captives, Jesus. But we're uncomfortable with the day of vengeance, Jesus. Nobody has a bumper sticker about the day of vengeance, Jesus, right? I've never seen a t-shirt about the day of vengeance, Jesus. This is one of those places where we need to grasp the seriousness of what the Bible is saying. Anyone who's thinking, you know, I don't need to respond to God now. He's a loving God, so I'm sure if he's real, he'll just let me in later on. Anyone thinking that, the Bible says, is catastrophically mistaken. Catastrophically mistaken. And the Bible is good enough to be clear about this to us so that we don't have any reason for confusion. And the immediate counter from everybody who doesn't want to receive Jesus right now is, well, how can a loving God talk about vengeance? I mean, we're all thinking like, I'm not sure in this part of the message with anybody at work tomorrow. Because you know what they're going to say. They're going to say, how can a loving God even have the word vengeance in his vocabulary? I mean, that's the accusation, right? That doesn't seem very loving. John 10, I encourage you to read it this week. In John 10, Jesus describes himself as a shepherd. He describes those who follow him as his sheep. He gives us great insight into how this whole vengeance thing works. You know, the Bible tells us in Isaiah 53 that like sheep, we've all gone astray. We've all left the flock. We've all left where we're supposed to be. 
We've all gone our own way, turned and done our own thing. I'm going to go eat grass over there. I'm going to go to that hill. We've all turned and done our own thing. In Isaiah 53, it says, but God laid on Jesus the punishment that belonged to us instead. We've all turned, every single one of us, but God put the punishment for that on Jesus instead of us. And Jesus invites us right now to be a part of his flock, to become one of his sheep. He says this in John 10, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. So Jesus gives the invitation, come, come be a part of my flock. Come back. You don't, have, you don't have to fear me. There's no punishment. Come back and be a part of my flock. And when Jesus is your shepherd, you're going you're gonna to follow him. At a certain point in the day, night's going to come. And the good shepherd is going to bring his sheep into the fold so that they will be safe for the night. And the way that they would build a fold would be in a cave where they'd build a freestanding structure with one way in, one way out, a gate, a door into the fold. Jesus says this. He says, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. He says, I am the gate. The picture is a shepherd at the door. He's, he's getting a sheep in there. And as they're going in, he's checking. Yep, that's mine. That's my sheep. That's my sheep. He's not bringing in sheep from anybody else's flock. He's bringing in his sheep. And he's making sure that every single one of them is accounted for. And that's the picture Jesus wants us to have. They have to belong to the shepherd if they're going to get into the fold. Jesus says this. He says, truly, truly. Anytime Jesus says truly, truly, or verily, verily, he's saying, you can take this to the bank. He's saying, pay attention to this. I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. So here's the scene. It's night. Jesus is at the gate protecting the sheep. He sees a shadow. The shepherd sees a figure climbing over the wall. He says, no shepherd in history has ever thought in that moment, maybe it's one of my sheep I forgot climbing over the wall. He says, there's only one explanation in that situation. He's a thief. He's a robber. That thief is going to get the vengeance of the shepherd because that thief is coming for his flock. Nobody ever accused the gatekeeper of being unloving for bolting the city gate at sunset. Jesus says, it's like that. This is your opportunity to come in, but night is coming and there will only be two groups, my sheep, thieves and robbers. One's going to be protected. One's going to get my vengeance. Jesus is crystal clear about that. You know, you might find this very culturally offensive, but I need you to understand that Jesus is saying there is no other way. He says, I am the gate. When somebody says, you know, I believe all paths lead to God, it's one of the most tragically misinformed positions. It's something people believe to help them sleep at night. Because when you look at what Jesus says, Jesus says it's not true. Coincidentally, other religions say the same thing. It's impossible for that theory to be true 
if, that you could be a Christian, a Muslim, a Hindu, a Krishna, and end up in the same place when Jesus said, there's no other way. He didn't say, every path leads to me. He didn't say, in my fold are many doors. He said, I'm the gate. He said, no one comes through the Father except through me. That's the picture Jesus is giving. He says, this is the time to come into the fold. But night is coming. There's going to come a time when the door closes and it's going to be too late. And that's the second coming of Christ. You know, Jesus, Jesus gave up his life for you and I. He was murdered and tortured for you and I. The Father and the Son have done everything possible to get you into the fold, to get me into the fold now. They've done everything possible to get us there. But they're not going to drag us there. So you can never accuse a father who gave up the life of his own son to try and save you of being unloving. He sort of took that card away when he gave up the life of Jesus, his only begotten son. So there will be vengeance. And the reality is it will be deserved. It'll be deserved because we chose to reject him if we choose to do that. Just as sure as there was a first coming, there'll be a second coming. He came the first time as a lamb. He's coming the second time as a lion. Verse 22 says this. It says, So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. They're going, this this is amazing. This is profound. This is incredible. They're all marveling. So, So catch this. He's told them he's the Messiah, his hometown crowd, and their first response, shockingly, is actually, wow. There's something about the authority that's on Jesus. There's enough of the Holy Spirit on him that the people actually go, wow. These are gracious words. This is amazing. You're, you're the Messiah. And then someone speaks up. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? So do you remember last week when Jesus says a prophet is without honor in his hometown? We're seeing that sequence play out again right here notice the sequence of events they're they're amazed at what jesus has said they know that it's from god (coughs) but then they begin to analyze the messenger instead of the message and they say but it can't be this this is just joseph's son you know sometimes we do the same thing god speaks to us through somebody we know he's spoken to us we know it's a word of god but we don't really want to respond to it so we start picking apart the messenger instead of the message. We find all their flaws because everybody has flaws. There's reasons you shouldn't listen to anybody because none of us are perfect. And we get to the point where we say, you know, I, I, just, I just can't receive that. I just can't take that message. And the question we're not, a- we're not asking anymore is, is, is it from God? We're just saying, is that person perfect? No? Okay, I don't have to obey. Whew. I was close there. Almost thought I was going to have to respond to the Holy Spirit for a second. Woo! Okay. If you fall into that trap, here's why it's so dangerous. You'll believe the message when the messenger looks good. Right? The Bible says Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. This is why, as we said last week, when the traveling speaker comes through, everybody believes them. Because they don't know him. Right? So he can get up and look flashy and look godly and holy for two hours and then leave before you get to know him. You're like, that's a man of God. How do you know? He's gone, you know. So you will fall for a lie when the messenger looks good. 
flip side is you will miss the truth when the messenger is not impressive enough. Too old, too young, too experienced, too unexperienced, too boring, too flashy, too white, too black, too whatever. There's always a way to pick it apart. You know, over the years, countless people have missed Jesus because the packaging wasn't impressive enough for them. They're like, man, I'd be believing in Jesus if he had like a choir of a million angels following him around all the time singing, you know, Handel's Messiah. Then I'd believe. But you expect me to believe just this guy who who was a dude? Just a guy? You expect me to believe that's God? That's how Jesus works, isn't it? Clothed in humility. He says, listen, if you're looking for a show, you're going to have to look elsewhere. If you're looking for the truth, if you're really looking, you'll, you'll see it. You'll find it. That's why Jesus gets so annoyed at people constantly demanding miracles from him as evidence. They're saying, give us the show. Prove yourself. Jesus says, listen to the message. If they had listened to the message, there wouldn't have been any doubt. They believe the message and then they start picking apart the messenger. Isn't this just Joseph's son? I remember this guy when he was a kid. And now he's the Messiah? Like, what happened? Is this like supernatural puberty or something? Like, what? what is going on? They pick apart the messenger. You know, there's many people today who consider themselves highly, highly spiritual. Highly spiritual. Because they have some, you know, abstract 3D graphic as their Facebook cover page. And they're like, man, I was just burning some incense today. And <laughs> it's what makes me spiritual, man. You know, all roads lead to God, bro. And, uh, and here's the truth about Christianity. We're, we're gathered in a hotel conference room. We don't feel profoundly mystical. But the honest truth is what we're talking about is more profound, more deep than anything going on in a room full of doctorate-level philosophers. We're talking about the absolute truth of the entire universe. And we know it. God's given it to us. It's profound. And millions miss it because we don't have the right packaging, you know. Maybe if you guys would all levitate, you know, then I'd, then I'd take it seriously, you know. But if it comes in humble packaging, miss it. Miss out on Jesus. We're about to see an amazing progression take place here. Take note again of what verse 22 says. It says, so all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. It's a good scene, right? Everybody's like, wow, what you're saying is amazing. God's on you. Doing something here, I can tell. It's verse 22. In just six verses, verse 28, we're going to read this. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. It's quite a turnaround, right? I know, I know what you're thinking. Did Jesus preach on giving? No, no, he didn't do that. He didn't ask people to serve in children's ministry either. Sorry, it's too easy. So he didn't ask people to serve in children's ministry either. So let's find out what actually happened that made them so mad. It's all in Jesus' blog post, How to Make a Synagogue Hate You in Less Than Two Minutes. Uh, you can read that later on. But we need to get some context first. This, this is really big. We need to go back to the birth of the nation of Israel to get why these guys get so mad at Jesus. About 2,000 years before this, there's a man named Abram. His name would later be changed to Abraham. 
And, and the, it says this in the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible. God comes to Abraham. It says, now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. This is on your outlines. I will make you a great nation. You might want to underline that. I will bless you. You want to underline that. And make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. Underline, be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And then underline this. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the birth of the nation of Israel. This is the birth of the Israelites. It's all started with God choosing one man, Abraham. Bible actually, actually says that, that God chose a humble man to bless. The least man from the least tribe in the least region of the earth. And God said, I'm going to choose you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to start something sacred with you. It's an amazing promise, right? And you, you, you will probably notice the general gist of it is God taking one man saying, I'm going to raise a whole nation out of your family. I'm going to bless you to reveal myself to the world. And your mission is to be a sacred nation set aside for me. Your goal is to be a nation that blesses other nations, that tells other nations about me and invites them into my family. But that's not what happened. You see, very quickly, the nation of Israel became very ethnocentric and distorted God's promise into, we're chosen, we're special, we're blessed. God loves us and he hates everybody else. And he loves us because we're so awesome. And and so if you're not Jewish, God doesn't really want anything to do with you. They got the part where they were supposed to be blessed, but they forgot the part where they were supposed to be a blessing. And because they become so self-absorbed, their history, you can read about in the Old Testament, is full of seasons where they turn their backs on God as a nation. They get invaded by a foreign army, get dragged off in slavery. And this happens more than once. And then God starts giving them prophecies about a coming Messiah. He's going to send a savior to them. But just as they did with God's promise to Abraham, they take all these prophecies about the Messiah and they make them very ethnocentric. In other words, all about them once again. For example, Isaiah 9, this is on your outline, which is a prophecy about the Messiah. It says, for unto us a child is born. So we prophesied hundreds of years earlier that the Messiah was going to be born as a child. Unto us a son is given. It's going to be God's son. And the government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. So the Messiah is going to be God. Everlasting Father, that's a reference to the Trinity. Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Israel receives this prophecy about the coming Messiah, but they focus on the fact that he's going to establish a government. It's going to be on the throne of Israel. It's going to be in Israel, and it's going to increase and increase. Side note, this is another two-part prophecy. Some of this prophecy is about the first coming of Christ. Some is about the second. And they tune into the part that's about the second. And so they start looking for a savior, believing that we're going to be a great nation. There's going to be a new national leader that's going to lead us back to the place of prominence we deserve, the most important country in the whole world. God's going to come and pay back with vengeance all of our enemies. He's going to send them all to hell. He's going to stand up for us against anyone who's ever done us wrong. We're going to be free from the Romans, be the special people that we are. It's going to be great. And that's what they're looking for from the coming Messiah. And you have to understand that in order to understand why they get so mad shortly. 
So you go back to our story. Jesus knows that they're thinking this is only Joseph's son. He knows this. He knows that they're already moving towards unbelief. So he interrupts their skeptical thoughts in verse 23. He said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do here in your country. So he says, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say to me this, this proverb, physician, heal yourself. He's like, you're going to say to me, if you're the Messiah, do miracles here. We've heard about the miracles you've done in Capernaum. Do miracles here. Put on the show for us. Jesus is not a monkey who does tricks on command. He's not. He only cares about the approval of one person, and that's the Father. He's not doing anything to earn their approval. And Jesus, coincidentally, is going to hear the same proverb spoken to him when he's hanging on the cross by the mocking crowd. When they say to him, he saved others, he couldn't save himself. It's a variation of the proverb, physician, heal yourself. The idea was, if you're a doctor, you should never have to see another doctor. And so they're going to mock Jesus with this one day. Verse 24, then he said, assuredly I say to you, here we see it again, no prophet is accepted in his own country. It's the proverb we heard last week. And then he's going to reference two stories from the Old Testament. The idea is no prophet's accepted in his own home country. And by the way, let me share with you two stories about prophets who weren't accepted in their home country, which happens to be Israel. Verse 25, we'll, we'll read it and then I'll explain it. He says, but I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So let's break this down. In the first story, Elijah and Zarephath, it's the middle of a massive drought in the entire region of Israel. So going on three and a half years, God comes to his prophet, Elijah. He says, Elijah, I want you to go to the specific home of this specific woman. Her name is Zarephath. She's in this region called Sidon. That's where I want you to go. So Elijah goes there. He encounters this woman, and he says, can I have a drink? She gives him a drink. He says, oh, would you mind getting me uh, some bread to eat too? And she says, here's the deal. We've got enough flour and oil to make one more piece of bread. The plan was my son and I were going to eat that bread and then sit down and die. And Elijah says, make me the bread anyway. He says, have faith. He says, if you do this for me, God's going to take care of you. Your jug of oil, your jar of flour will never run out till the end of the famine. That's what God will do for you if you do this for me. And she has faith in God. She does it, and the miracle takes place. She never runs out. While Elijah's there, her son is in such a bad state from starvation, he dies. Elijah goes in and cries out to God. Child is raised from the dead. Amazing miracle happens. That's the story of Elijah and Zarephath. And then we get to the second story. We meet this man named Naaman. He's a, he's a commander in the Syrian army. The Assyrians are Israel's arch enemy. He gets leprosy. It's like a slow death sentence. You're going to die of it, but you're going to die slowly and painfully. You're going to die as an outcast. You can't be with normal people. You can only be around other lepers. He's terrified. He's an important military commander. <clears throat> and in his household, he has a Jewish slave girl who is an attendant to his wife. And this slave girl tells his wife, Naaman's wife, there's this prophet, Elisha, in Samaria right now. 
If your husband would go and see him, he'd heal him. Tell him to go see Elisha. So he goes to see Elisha. Elisha doesn't even come out to meet him. He just sends him a message and says, Elisha says, go dip yourself seven times in the Jordan River. This guy Naaman is furious. And he says, I'm not going to do that. It's ridiculous. There's rivers where I live. He thinks Elisha's just trying to embarrass him. But his servants say, just trust him. Trust God and, and do it. This guy knows God. So Naaman's faced with this challenge. Will he have faith and believe in God? He does it, dips himself in the Jordan River seven times. He's dramatically healed. This is the second story Jesus tells. Both stories take place during times of great unbelief in the nation of Israel. Both prophets, Elijah and Elisha, were preaching to the Israelites and they weren't listening to them at all. In both stories, Israel needed miracles. They needed help with the drought. There were lots of lepers at the time of Naaman as well. There were leper colonies springing up all over the place full of Jews. But in both stories, God bypasses all of them and goes to the Gentiles. Both Naaman and Zarephath are non-Jews. They're Gentiles. But they have enough faith to believe God for a miracle. And they receive a miracle. So these are two sort of wildly offensive stories to the Jewish audience there. They don't really talk about them a whole lot, even though they know they're a part of their history. What Jesus is saying to all the Jews there, he's saying, you know, when Elijah and Elisha were not received in their own land, they were sent to the Gentiles to do significant miracles. So watch out. Because if you're not careful, you're going to miss out on a miracle right now. That's Jesus' message. And the synagogue is full of men who are still very ethnocentric. And when Jesus says he's the Messiah, I'm sure there's a whole bunch of guys who are ready to break out into Israel, Israel kind of chant. Instead, Jesus just kills the vibe by giving them a warning. He's like, hey, don't miss out on another miracle. Don't miss out on another one. It's this not-so-subtle way of saying, I'm the Messiah, but I'm not the Messiah you're expecting. I'm still looking for faith, and I'll do a miracle wherever I find it. I'm not looking to bless rule-keeping people. I'm coming to bless people who want saving and have enough faith to believe that I can save them. You thought I was coming just to bless you so that we could continue in our ethnocentric, self-centered ways our religious experience, hating everybody who's not like us, but, but I've got other plans. And then it says, verse 28, so all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. You and I, as Gentiles, as non-Jews, are often helped by the Pharisees in the Gospels because we don't always understand what's going on. Anytime you see the Pharisees get mad in Scripture, that's a huge clue that Jesus has just done or said something radical and offensive. It's like a red light going off. So it's pay attention, figure out what Jesus has done that's so wildly offensive to them. And now, now we know what it is. Verse 29, I love this, I love this. And rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city, Nazareth, was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. So they're going to th- kill him by throwing him off the cliff. Love verse 30. Then passing through the midst of them, he went on his way. This is just supernatural Jesus right here. He's got this angry mob. He's on the edge of a cliff. Jesus will say this later on in his life. He'll say, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down. The idea is he's on a mission from the Father. He's full of the Spirit. You cannot kill him until Jesus says, I'm ready to lay down my life. They go to kill him. There's an angry mob. Something supernatural happens. There's confusion. 
Jesus just walks right through the middle of them. I don't even recognize that he's gone. Minutes later, somebody goes, I don't think Jesus is in the middle of our angry mob anymore. And it's not going to be the last time Jesus does this. Crowd gets really mad at him, and he just like walks right through him. Just part. It's a pretty cool exit. Very, very cool exit. I wouldn't try that. Don't go get a group of people angry and then try it. Just don't do it. Don't do it. So this is the first occurrence of hostility towards Jesus' ministry. Everybody loves the miracles. Everybody loves the offer of salvation. This is the first time people start getting hostile towards Jesus. There's a lot of valuable lessons we can learn here. We're going to close with these things. You know, we can just as easily as the Jews did block out part of the gospel and turn it into the thing that we want to hear. We can easily turn it into, you you know why I'm a Christian? Because what the Bible says that I'm going to be blessed in everything that I I do. I'm going to be happy all the time. God wants me to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. We can block out the parts where God says, hey, I'm going to be with you even when it's tough. We can block out the parts where God says, hey, you're going to need to persevere and hang in there through some tough times. But you're going to learn more of me through that than any other time in your life. We block out the part where Jesus says, hey, in this world you will have trouble. And without realizing it, we can turn the gospel and the word of God into what we want to hear rather than listening to the whole thing. And we can miss out on the truth. So write this down. We must strive to know and understand the whole counsel of God, all of his word. We got to know the whole counsel of God. That's why we talk about things like the second coming of Christ and the day of vengeance. Man, I know that doesn't put butts in the seats. I know that what, <laughs> what crows at church is saying, hey, God loves you. Everything's going to be awesome forever. You're special. And that'll grow a church. But we need to know the whole counsel of God. We need to know the whole counsel of God. And then secondly, write this down. So simple, so true. The gospel is for everyone. It's for everyone. We have to remember that the Holy Spirit changes us from the inside out. And everything falls apart in our lives and the lives of others when we buy into the lie that we need to change, then come to Jesus. Jesus says, no, come to me and you'll change. That's what he says. And the constant attack of Satan is saying, you know, you need to withdraw from God for a while after you've screwed up. Change yourself, get yourself together, then go back to God. When the reality is you can't get yourself together apart from God. You just can't. So we have to understand the truth that God is going to bring people to him who are in some very awkward stages of life. People are going to be a mess a lot of the time when they come to Jesus. And I pray that our church one day would be full of people who are a mess when they've come to Jesus and are being changed from the inside out through the power of the Holy Spirit in them. But we've got to remember that that's how the Holy Spirit works. You know, we've already seen the woman at the well who had five husbands and is basically exchanging sex for rent when Jesus has a conversation with her. That's a past, right? And Jesus knows it, and he talks to her anyway. Her life changes dramatically after meeting Jesus, but she still has to live in the same town. She still has to walk that out. I'm sure it was awkward the first time she showed up for church, right? Oh, how's Joe doing? Not with Joe anymore. How's Steve? Mm, not with Steve. Brian? Mm. Still would have been pretty awkward, right? Would have been very awkward because God changes us from the inside out. 
the great deception is you got to stay away till you got it all together. No, you need to come to Jesus. You don't have any hope of getting it together without him. I don't either. So whatever is in your past, whatever is in your present, the gospel is for you. It's for you. Don't try and change first. Come to Jesus and let him change you from the inside out. You know, for those of you who have been believers for a while, I usually always get choked up when I talk about it, but if you've been a believer for a while, here's what I know. I know that you have moments where you think to yourself, I really thought I'd be further ahead by now. I thought I'd be further down the road. I feel this all the time. I thought I'd be over that. I didn't think I'd still be battling that temptation. I didn't think I'd still be trying to get that discipline down. I didn't think I'd still be wrestling with that. I thought I'd be, I thought I'd be so much more like Jesus than I am right now. My favorite character in the Bible in terms of being an encouragement is, is Peter. Peter is the guy to whom Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He's a disciple of Jesus. He has a thought, but it's a thought inspired by Satan, not by God. And Jesus has to rebuke him like that. Like, that's pretty harsh. You know, Jesus in front of your friends says, get thee behind me, Satan, to you. I think he's mad at you. You think? Peter is the guy who, when Jesus is on trial about to be murdered in his hour of greatest need, Peter denies three times even knowing Jesus. Doesn't even have the courage to admit knowing him to a servant girl. That's who Peter is. Peter is the same guy to whom Jesus says, you're Peter. On this rock, I'll build my church. The gates of hell won't stand against it. Jesus said that to Peter. And you know, years and years and years after Peter has been a pastor in the Jerusalem church, Jesus has gone back to heaven. Peter's still messing up. Some guys start telling Peter, hey, hey Peter, you know, you need, to get, you need to get some rules back in this thing, some good old-fashioned Jewish rules. Peter buys into it and starts preaching that you've got to follow all these rules that you're free from. So what happens to Peter? One of the original 12 disciples, pastor of the most important church in the world at that time, the apostle Paul comes to him and says, I confronted him to his face in public. You get dressed down by the apostle Paul in public. And he's right. He's right. I mean, there's nothing worse than being called out in public. Well, there is. It's when the other person's actually right. That's the worst, right? (laughs) Peter just screws up again and again and again and again and again. But he loves Jesus. He believes in Jesus. Jesus never stops using Peter, ever. Jesus doesn't ever send anyone to Peter to say, you know, you're, you're not fit to pastor this church anymore. You should know this by now. He doesn't say, I'm, I'm done with you. This is the final straw. After he denied him three times, Jesus doesn't say, you know, you failed the test. That was a test. You failed. It's the original 11 now. He doesn't, he doesn't ever say that to Peter. So no matter how much further down the road you thought you'd be, God still wants to use you. He's never given up on you for a second. He wants to do great, great things through you. And the final point is this. Jesus didn't come the first time to reform the government. He will the second time. It'll be his government. But here's the truth we need to understand. You cannot legislate holiness. You can't write laws 
to make people good. Can't write laws to make people love God. Read the Old Testament. We got thousands of years of evidence of that failed experiment. Changed people are what change a culture. And changed lives change governments and countries. That's the truth. So I'm not saying don't care, but I'm just saying, Jesus said, I'm not going to be running your governments till the second coming. He didn't come to bring political reform the first time. He came to bring a revolution inside of us. That's what he came to do. Would you bow your head and pray with me? Let's just spend a little bit of time with the Lord today. And the, the first thing I want you to know is whether you're a non-believer, whether you're a believer for a short time or a believer for a long time, I want you to know you are not disqualified. You're not disqualified because of your past. You're not disqualified because of your present. You're not disqualified because of your lack of progress, your failures. You're not counted out. Jesus said, I am the door. Anyone who chooses is welcome to come in. Even if you've got a past, I came for you. And so if today you've never responded to the invitation of Jesus, then today is your day. It's a simple matter of saying, Jesus, I recognize that it's only through you that I can be saved. I want to belong to you. I want to believe in you. I want you to be my God. I'm coming through that door. If you'll do that, Jesus says he'll forgive everything you've ever done, everything you'll ever do. For some of us, that's more than others. But you know, for all of us, that's a lot. And Jesus paid for all of it. This is the day when Jesus is saying, come in. Come in. So just while while every eye is closed, every head is bowed, I want to give you the opportunity to respond to that. If you've never accepted Jesus, you've never given your life to him before, but today you know, I, I, I want to belong to Jesus. I don't have it all together. I'm a mess I'm a disaster. I've got all these issues I'm still working on. If that's where you're at, would you just raise your hand? I don't want to embarrass you. I just want to pray for you. Thank you so much. Anybody else here this morning? Thank you. Let's just keep our eyes closed. Let's all just pray this out loud together after me. Let's all pray this together. Dear Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for inviting me into your family. I believe you are the door, the only way, and I want to belong to you. Be my God, be my Savior, be my everything. That's a huge deal. That's a huge deal. And I really want to encourage you if you've been a believer for a while, and when I say, Man, I thought I'd be further down the road. That just pricks something in you. Because you feel that. I just want you to know that God loves you. He loves you so much. He's not done with you. As long as you're not done with Him. He's not done with you. 
you know, for some of us, the greatest thing we'll achieve in life will be something amazing for God. Others of us have just been called to just hang in there and persevere. For some of you, the greatest thing you'll ever do in your life is love God unwaveringly through some very difficult things. God says, that's greatness in his eyes. He says, that's greatness you can't even understand this, kind, this side of eternity. We all have different callings. We're all called to do different things, to live different lives. But God isn't done with any of us, and he has a plan for all of us. And this is what I know. I know that in his plan, there's joy for you, there's peace for you, there's hope for you. Every need is met in him. I know that, whatever your story is, because God promises that. You can take it to the bank. So would you just spend a minute, wherever you're at, just thanking God that he's not done with you. Thank him that he's not done. Let that be your confession of faith. Thank him that you have peace through him. Thank him that you have hope through him. Thank him that you have joy and life through him.